This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the Positive Populist Podcast. It's our inaugural podcast, and I'm so excited that Sebastian Thron is with me today. Sebastian is a friend of mine. We live very close uh, to each other in Silicon Valley. Um, he really belongs in Silicon Valley, unlike me. Uh, Sebastian is an incredible uh, computer scientist, uh, one of the inventors of self-driving cars, now working on flying cars, um, the founder of a company called Udacity, which is an incredibly interesting company, helping people to acquire skills for the jobs of the future. There's such a long list. I don't know where to start. Oh, Stanford University, Artificial Intelligence. You had this incredible course, didn't you, at Stanford University? which was really the pioneer of the whole uh, movement we've seen for what's called massive online open courses, which is people being able to learn at a distance. Incredible, incredible um, accomplishments. So, Sebastian, welcome. And I want to start with this question. Um, are you or could you ever be a positive populist? <laughs> First of all, Steve, it's so great seeing you. And uh, as you rattled down some of the things I, you, I, I've done, I feel really, really old right now. I <laughs> am <laughs> um, just generally positive by nature uh -huh. because I think, I mean, there's challenges in the world. There's challenges that I face and we face that, that require a lot of careful thinking. And, and But in, in, in the grand cause of things, things tend to work out in a positive way and, and there's progress tends to make the world a better place. So I go around the world and tell people stop being so depressed. Like, stop thinking we are no. all getting poorer or we are all getting sicker or we all work harder or, or the world is getting into extreme poverty by the day. These are all just myths. These are just negative things that people have and we should just eradicate those. Great. Well, that's a very... If anyone can eradicate things um, in, a, in, a, in a scalable way, I think that's a term that um, uh, you hear a lot in Silicon Valley that is you I want to start by just asking you then um, to tell us really the story of how you got to Silicon Valley as people can hear from your accent I think that um, you're not uh, a native Californian yeah. like me tell, tell where, <laughs> where, where, where did you um, come from Sebastian how did you get here born and raised in Germany 1967 uh, regular white blue color parents and And then got my um, my Whereabouts degrees. in Germany? To paint this the picture. What kind of? It's just close to Berlin, uh -huh. in a small city called Hildesheim, a hundred thousand souls, everyone, uh -huh. everybody, and basically um, in a part of Germany where the most pedantic of all Germans live. They have an absolute <laughs> well, no pedantic sense of humor. Germans. That's yes. like really something. Yes. Okay. Everything is serious always. Okay. <laughs> in uh, fact, it's, it's Germans where the first question often is, "What's the negative?" Oh, interesting. They're, they're, we are really, really good in, in finding this one negative thing in your life. Like, oh, my God. So I, I went to my sister the other day, and she hadn't seen me in five years. And the very first thing she said is, wow, you've gotten really fat. Oh, my God. And he was very correct. This <laughs> is not the way we do it in America. <laughs> Absolutely not. God, that's amazing, especially California. Yes. Um, so so with that, when, like, I just want to get a sense of you. Um, back there in Germany I mean were you would like obviously you're so associated now with, with science and technology and was that always the case was that your passion when you were a kid or did it suddenly 
come along I, later. I was the third in the bunch, and my parents didn't have quite the attention past two of them, so I was always put in the corner. And right. I learned from this to kind of get along with myself. So I built lots of stuff and so on and oh, read lots of books. But what kind of, you mean, le- le- I don't know, Legos or what? what yeah, there was a version of Lego in Germany. No uh-huh. one knows, but like an erector set type thing that I right. spent like years doing stuff. Way too many. Okay. <laughs> and then I guess um, I, I, I found computers and, and computers at the time were not very, very popular. So I, uh-huh. a department store had these computers sitting there and for sale and I would go there after school for three or four hours and program something and come back the next day and program uh-huh. some more. And the staff realized I was actually stealing their resources. But they liked me. There's this kid coming in every day playing on this thing called computer, but not buying it. Right. And that's how I learned how to program computers. R- roughly, how, how old were you roughly when you're doing that? 12 years old. So you learned to, you, you taught yourself to program computers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the machine was worth 400 bucks. It had no memory. So you couldn't save the work of the day. So every time I came in, I had to reprogram what I programmed programmed yesterday uh-huh. and then on top of it the new thing so it became very efficient in moving my fingers so i just want to do a sort of quick detour from the story there because i'm just really interested in, with all your knowledge now about artificial intelligence how the brain works how computers work that that you know the, the connection between the two of them would you say that that this was a question back then for you of just natural aptitude or could any kid have done it if they went frequently enough? What, what was there something about your brain that that from an early age lent itself to this kind of thing? It's kind of hard to say because I never ran the experiment to to build a thousand Sebastians and do the statistics, um, and it's introspective. But I would say um, in in childhood education right now, I would say there's three things that should really matter. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, one is social emotional skills. One is technical skills, and one is what I call perseverance. Like if you start something, get it done. And I think we do a really, really good job in this country uh, with the technical skills, your mm-hmm. English language skills, comprehension skills, and math skills. We do a lousy job with mm-hmm. social emotional skills. And we do a lousy job with perseverance. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm, I still am weak on the social emotional side, but I learn how to persevere. So I can really focus on something to the point that I forget to eat. And did someone teach you that? Are you saying that was, was that innate? Uh, that was the result of me being pretty much left alone uh, as the third kid. So I had two siblings who were left on the door who were very demanding in that time. Uh-huh. And I was just tucked in the corner. That was my life. So you just had to get on with it. Yeah, and it was great. I loved it. Interesting. Okay, great. Um, so then what what were the steps? that Let's just t- talk us through how you got here. You, you're developing this aptitude for computers. you doing your programming. So I, I grew up in a, a family with, with lots of rules and, and Catholic family and so on. And in the early age, I just felt my sport in life has to be to break all the rules. So in grade seven, I decided uh-huh. as a sport, can I make it through middle school and then high school without ever doing homework assignment? <laughs> and I was like sport. I was like, I had specific rules. I was able to copy from other people, but only in those circumstances. Right. I wasn't able to use anything original on my end, but mm-hmm. copying and stealing was okay. Right. And as a result, I had to make myself liked. The other people would give me the homework assignment. So I had to be nice to people. I learned how to nice because for this challenge. Wow. And as I then transitioned into college, I, I, I still remember this. Every time professor said, do something this way, I immediately tried the opposite way. 
God, every I single love time. That Sebastian, I now I understand why we're friends. That is totally <laughs> my instinct for everything, yes. and I'm still getting nearly arrested all the time. You know, for sort of asking why I have to do this or tell you know. Like, I mean, it's not a it's good so heuristic in life. I mean, most of the time you you give you screw up if you do this. Right. But occasionally something great. So, for example, at age 21 ish, I'm now an undergrad student. There's this incredibly important scientific conference where the professors uh-huh. might go to if they're really really lucky. And I decide I'm going to submit a a, a contribution, a paper. The, the way this works is these scientific conferences, the world's best people meet, in this case in Denver, Colorado. And to get in there, you have to submit a scientific hypothesis, a contribution, a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. So I did this, and it got in. It was a 2% acceptance rate. The conference is now called NURIPS or NIPS. Um, and all of a sudden, I went to America standing in front of the world's best expert as a 22-year-old now right. and trying to defend my pretty crappy paper. Oh, my God. That's amazing. But, Everyone around me in Germany said it can't be done. Everyone said, no, don't do it. Uh-huh. You're too young. You're not senior enough. You're not a professor yet. You're just an undergrad student. So so it was something where, where people told me you can't do it, made me want to do it. Great. Well, that's a re- great. Um, and, 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 and then you're... And then you stay here, basically, do you, after that, in America? Yeah, so I got my, 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 my various degrees and upgrade to PhD in Germany. And then I, I found this incredibly great job at Carnegie Mellon University in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh, which mm-hmm. um, I love Pittsburgh, where I got a chance to basically meet the world's best people in computer science. Mm-hmm. And now my community weren't the naysayers of my childhood. They were the yes-sayers in the world. They were like these incredibly inspiring wow. professors that are, I've, I would literally go every day into the building thinking they made a mistake. They're going to find out. They're going to come to me and say, thank you so much, Sebastian, and send me back on a plane. And so those professors, right, They were they all um, from all over the world? Yes, absolutely. And I loved it because I would have dinner with a person from China or lunch with a person from India. And in doing so, I realized, my God, there is so many fewer rules than there should be. Mm-hmm. Um, no, other way around, sorry. There's so many more rules in Germany than there should be. Mm-hmm. Because in Germany, you dress a certain way, you behave a certain mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. In India, you dress differently mm-hmm. and you behave differently. But that's still fine, still humans. But what I'm, what I'm driving at then is that, what is it the culture of that Carnegie Mellon? Is it the culture of... American academia is it the culture of America or is it the individual culture of the, is it the people with that attitude gravitate towards a place like that what's what's going on that it's so different from what you I, mean, I can with? tell you as a as a kind of rule breaker and I mean this hopefully in a positive way mm-hmm. um, I would of course find myself environments where I find other people who are visionary who want to change the world and who are not willing to accept the history as the lone guidepost for what is possible in the future. I mean, we live in a world where technology is transforming every aspect of human life. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, we should question every aspect of human life, not destroy it, but at least question it and have a debate. It's like politics done the right way, is education done the right way, is transportation done the right way. And very often when we think first principles, we come up with different solutions. So let's jump to one of those things. Like, and there's there's many that you you have worked on, are working on, that you would definitely put in that category of world changing things. Um, let's take one of the ones you're most famously identified with: self driving cars. What, what's the story there? Where did that start? How did you? Well, it started out get that um, going. Started out in around 2004-ish. I was now a professor at Stanford mm-hmm. and teaching robotics, artificial intelligence. And this challenge came along that the U.S. government created. It was called DARPA Grand Challenge. Mm-hmm. And it was a challenge to universities and companies and individuals to build the very first self-driving car, so to speak. 
the car had to drive itself about 130 miles mm-hmm. through the Mojave Desert without a driver inside. And it was kind of not as complex as today because there were no other cars. Right. It was basically a very stationary environment. But it was tough. Uh, 196 teams competed. Uh-huh. And my tiny team in Stanford one. It was a kind of a watershed wow. moment for me. That is an amazing thing, right? I mean, <laughs> it changed my career. I want to hear a bit more about it. I mean, you, how long did it, you know, what's the sort of t- trajectory, the timeline, I guess, from you hearing about the contest, putting a team together, do, you know, what, what happened? What's so the story? I got involved just about a year before the actual event and I had nothing. I had no students, I had no car, no computers, no money. So I decided as a Stanford professor, to teach a class on this topic. And mm-hmm. my Stanford students that are there, of course, for college credit, would secretly work for me for free building my first round of technology. So I, right. I made this class and I told the students, it's actually a great number. At Stanford, you can go and tell the student, let's do one quarter and slow climate change. Right. And the students don't quite know how hard it is, so they're just going to try it. Okay. Right. So in this case, I said, let's do one quarter, in like 10 weeks, and build a self-driving car that can drive at least a mile through the Mojave Desert. Wow. And lo and behold, 10 weeks later, we had a car, it was instrumented programmed, had a machine learning and all this wonderful stuff, and it was driving 8.4 miles. How many students? It started with 40 students. Right. In week two, uh, only 20 students came back because the other 20 were smart enough to realize it would wreck their other studies working with me. Because it's so intense. And then they got consumed by it. There was right, no right, sleep right. anymore. It was intense. That's just an amazing story. And you've got, and you, so you, in 10 weeks, you did it eight times what the plan was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... And just so I just want to understand like the, the motivation for the original the contest you know the DARP the defense part of the defense department that's right? correct DARP. yeah absolutely okay so they w- that notion of a self-drive would they call it autonomous vehicle what do they call, I don't know like that whatever language they had that it was that something that had been around for a long time that was a sort of fantasy and then that they now thought the technology is good enough that we might make this a reality I, I think this is one of these star star moments of of American history or if I say mm-hmm. ingenuity um, the U.S. government had spent roughly half a billion of money in, in research funds on, on when they self-driving cars. Mm-hmm. And what they typically got is a vehicle that could drive a quarter of a mile and then crash frontally into a tree, right. combined with a stack of research papers which basically said, give us more money. Um, I would say, despite some good work in the field, this was a far cry from anything interesting. And the U.S. government really came up with this idea to say, normally we pay people for work. We give them money for every hour worked. Mm-hmm. Let's do something else. Let's give money for accomplishment, for doing something that has an outcome. So they put out this $1 million price and, and later raised it to $2 million bucks to say, if anyone can do this, you're right. going to make $2 million bucks. Wow. Amazing. And so then let's just, like, you won the prize. What then? I mean, like, you're now, that's an incredible feat. Yeah, so I, I got bitten by this bug to say, let's just find and change the world. And I have, mm-hmm. a, I have a really embarrassing story. So I did Street View and a few other things at Google. Well, but how then, did you get to Google? You're not at Google at this point. Yeah, so my next, my next step in life is to start a startup company. And the reason is all my colleague professors do startup companies right. and they have fun. And some of them have bigger cars as a result. So I decide I'm, I'm going to start a company. And eventually we converge for a small version of what later become Street View. And we have a Google Street View. Right. Google Street View. And we have a small inside Stanford version that we build up mm-hmm. where you can record images of all of San Francisco and then you can use your phone and kind of re experience the feeling of driving to San Francisco the way we, we see Street View today. 
Right. And that's when, when Larry came by, Larry Page, the Google co-founder, yeah. and kind of convinced us to continue this work uh, at Google with the argument that at Google we have a much bigger compute farm, we have much more money, we can right. buy many more cars, many so more people. So he's basically wandering around Stanford looking for great yeah. ideas and people. Yeah. Right, and you came, and he came, you, you were on his ra- radar, as it were. Yeah. He, and he says, come to Google, and you did. Yeah, it was really fun. It was really amazing. And for me, it was amazing because I was kind of now a, somewhat like, I hate to say it, a famous Stanford professor. I won the Starbucks yeah. Grand Challenge. And Google made me a, what's called an engineering manager, too. So Google right. has about 11 or 12 or 13 steps of hierarchy, and it was in the fifth lowest step. So I was basically the lowest kid on the block. Right. So now I had to learn how to survive a company, and that was a lot of fun. Do you, do you mean in terms of the bureaucracy that you suddenly experienced? What was the what were the challenges? Look, in every big human organization, there's this pain in organizing things. Yeah. There's people who have to say yes. There are people that don't like it that much if you make progress, but they don't. Um, so I had to really navigate um, this fairly monstrous mapping organization, which at the time had more than 500 staff members to at really Google. get something done. At Google, yeah. Mapping. So what were they up to? What was the... Mapping, this Google Maps, the, the product was amazing. Google Maps is, I think, by far the best mapping application in the world. It did direction giving and so on. We actually even incorporated the street view. Well, it's, just, it's a very different skill. As a professor, you're like this demigod, right? Mm-hmm. You say something and people think you said something really, really smart. Like, right. Even if you didn't even say it, they ascribe it to you. Yeah. Um, if you're in an organization as a mid-level manager, you have a manager above you and that manager might not agree. And so talk to me about the mapping, because I, I, we've had a conversation before, and I think about, about this, and I think people will be staggered um, to sort of understand the thought process within Google that kind of led to the kind of the, the, the building of Google Maps as a product and, the, and the, literally the mapping of the world and how that happened. Just talk, tell us about that. Yeah, so the idea of building a digital map of the world way predates me. And I think the Google founders uh, founded the company with this desire, not just to do with the textual information, like the web information and, and the video, but also the geographic information available to the world. And they, they had this vision from, from almost from day one that at some point you had a mobile device, later on called a smartphone, where you could mm-hmm. really go and, and put in your directions and it helps you navigate. Um, I joined this uh, specifically for Street View. And the vision here was that if you could just go and look at places, look how people live and, and, and understand how people live, we would bring the people people in the world closer together. Mm-hmm. So we did something crazy. We On day one, I remember we went to a store and bought 100 cars. Right. The dealer was falling over. Like, my God, 100 cars a day. This is cool. And then we bought 100 cameras. And we then hired 100 drivers, initially from Craigslist, actually, and then later on to a staffing company that we would just send out and say, hey, drive as much as you can. And we would reward them for every mile that they drive that had previously not been mapped. Right. So some of the drivers are really nice, and they would drive down to San Francisco. But the really smart ones realize is you can't map that many miles in, in stop-and-go traffic in a big city. So we had... The very first version of Street View had massive number of cornfields mapped in, in, in Iowa because right. if you if you map the cornfields in Iowa, you can map many more unique miles than you can do in a in a big city. That's amazing. So you literally have, this is what I think people find would find amazing is that and we hear all the time about you know artificial intelligence. We talked about that and 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 robots and technology. In the end, this was people driving cars, yeah, it's, and it's taking amazing. pictures with a camera. And look, the people would collect roughly like a terabyte of data per day. And that's actually, it was a fairly big disk in the day. So after like three weeks, they had a big packet box full of, of disks. And the only way to bring the data back to Google was by 
by FedEx. So we, we then had 100 drivers FedExing us every 20 days, a huge box of, of, of 20 discs, mm -hmm. which meant that all of a sudden we had this massive stack of thousands of discs sitting in Oregon in the data center <laughs> and we didn't know what to, how to get them in. So we, we hired people that whose sole job it was to pick up a disc, plug in the computer, wait a few hours until the yeah. data is copied and take it out. It was a gigantic. This was the biggest image database that ever existed. Yeah. And what I love about that story and just the way you're talking about it is that, especially now when Google is seen as this sort of giant, you know, entity and, you know, some people have very negative views about it for that exact reason and so on. But, and, and, and this has got this assumed all knowing ability and all, all powerful. But actually a lot of this is just improvisation, isn't it? It's sort of making it up. What do we do here? How do we get that happen? It's really interesting how that growth happened. I mean, I would say this is something I've learned and I would love to share with everybody is like from the outside, it always looks like Silicon Valley has a clear roadmap and we don't. Um, every time you innovate, every time you do something new, you will fail and fail. And not even fail. You, your, your first guess won't work and mm -hmm. you have to learn from it and improve yourself. If you don't have this kind of open, curious mindset and the willingness to learn, the willingness to concede defeat and change your direction, and you, you'll, you'll never, never, ever succeed. So what we do is we pick these visions. Like the vision was, why can't we like visualize every road from street level? Right. And that's a gigantic vision. And you could easily prove it can't be done, except we, we did it. And what's the, what's the mindset that really enables that? Is it, is it the kind of, well, you've got to start somewhere, so let's just put one foot in front of the other, rather than just seeing the whole thing? Or it's, it? it's I, I mean, people ask me about it, I would say, we are, we are simultaneously really, really arrogant and really, really humble. We're arrogant when we proclaim we can do this. For example, saying we're going to build a self-driving car at the time we said it was incredibly arrogant mm -hmm. because the technology wasn't there at all. And then we are humble in that when we then go and climb this mountain that we want to climb, that we are completely willing to go step after step, as you said, Steve. And then if we reach a false summit, we're willing to turn around. Mm -hmm. If there is a bad weather coming in, we can't see the summit. We still believe it's there. Um, so you have to nice. put these two yeah. things together. So I want to flip um, to another company that you started, Udacity. Um, I want to hear the story of that because I think there's, there's a connection there with where we started, that whole conversation about populism and being positive about technology and how it can help people because one of the biggest things that people are worried about is the fact that technology could really destroy jobs and people's livelihoods on an epic scale and i think udacity's got a really interesting part to play in that story yeah, i mean udacity for, for for the readers here or listeners here is um kind of like a, a an online university that teaches tech skills like you want to become a software engineer machine learning expert data scientists, you come to us, you pay typically like a thousand bucks or so. And in many, many cases, you can find a job in that area, often making tens of thousands of dollars extra. The way it started, however, was very different. Mm -hmm. The way it started is I was working at Google and we decided completely randomly that I would take a Stanford class online. Mm -hmm. It was 2011. I was teaching um, at Stanford in my free time, a Stanford graduate level AI class, artificial intelligence class. And we decided to make it available online for free. And we expected at the time, um, it wasn't a very hot topic like today, we expected like 500, maybe 1,000 students to sign mm -hmm. up. But 
160,000 students. Wow. So I was teaching a class to 160,000 students. Just imagine as a professor what that means to your life. I could go to any airport in the world and people would come up to me and say, hi, professor. That's crazy. Wow. And then of the 160,000, 23,000 actually finished. And I had the same class on campus, same homework assignments, same final exam. So I could compare my 200 Stanford students to those 23,000 finishers. And it turned out the top 412 people, students, in, in terms of stack ranking were not at Stanford. The best Stanford student ranked number 413. Wow. Sorry, but this is that's an amazing. I mean, I, I didn't realize that aspect of it. There was another aspect. Which so the best students... The 400s were not even there. They were just, purely online. Yeah. There were, were people you would never think of as a great student by their history or by their CV. So along the, way, along the way, I... I um, what did you mean by that? That's yeah, I tell you, I tell you. Along the way, I, um, I, uh, f- 40,000 people fell behind the homework assignment. So I sent mm-hmm. 40,000 emails and I got 40,000, my dog ate my homework kind of emails back. Yeah. And I started leading those and writing these stories. There was a lady named Diane who was a mother, uh, just recently divorced, one child teething. She was sick. Her family members lost a job. And she wanted to take this class and aced it in the end to prove to herself she's worthy of anything. It was amazing. There was a soldier in Afghanistan fighting for us, exfiltrating war zones in the middle of the night to reach a computer in time to submit their homework in time. No. There was a lady... To um, your artificial intelligence? Yes. He's on active duty. In in active duty in Afghanistan. Oh, my God. And he's already working... On the future past active duty. That, I'm sorry, that's just, I'd never heard that. So that's I had a lady named story. Melody, whom I had the great pleasure of, of meet, meeting later, who is a lady in, in Santa Cruz, is an IT professional, and she was on dialysis three times a week. She couldn't attend college, but she wanted to advance herself and took this class and passed it. And for me, the, the, the watershed moment, the watershed moment when I realized I even have to leave Google to do this, was that these people needed me more, one-on-one needed me more than my Stanford students. I love mm-hmm. Stanford. I adore Stanford. But my Stanford students are incredibly well-selected. I can certainly make them a little bit better. But if I can help a soldier in the battlefield to have a life after theater, then I have done so much bigger a deal than teaching at Stanford. Sebastian, you are a positive populist because there's nothing, I think, that captures... The idea better than what you just said, which is that which is that everybody should be able to have the same opportunities that the rich and powerful and well connected have. I yeah, just think if that's you start exactly. What, and what's interesting is is you know I talk about that a lot through you know I think about policy and what government can do and so on. You've done it through technology and through through business through as being an entrepreneur. I mean, I might ask you what you what you've been doing in in your technology life and your in, in your professional career um when you when you when you look at these things and peel back like the what we tend to take forgiven and ask are we doing the right thing you you arrive at the belief that in america we have the best universities there's no question like harvard and yale and stanford but they're extremely exclusive in fact they thrive on exclusivity Mm. if you wanted to design a university system you should almost do the opposite you should say let's be inclusive like, what if Stanford taught 100 million people? What if MIT taught 100 million people? Mm. So my goal had become almost the opposite. Um, the company Udacity teaches now lots and lots. I think we have just our 50,000 graduate, mm-hmm. lots of students here in the heartland. But we have a huge presence, for example, in the Middle East. We have mm-hmm. an initiative with the UAE 
to teach one million young people in the Arab-speaking world how to code and how to get a job in coding. Right. And that is doable now with technology. Like in today's day and age, where they have a million students or a 10 student is about the same amount of work on my end. Whereas in the past, I could never fit 160,000 students into one classroom. An amazing story. I love it. I, I, I just want to uh, um, wrap it up. We've got to stop now, unfortunately. But um, just thinking about all of the various bits of technology um, that, that you, you have worked on, you're, you're working on. What is it? Is, is, there, is there one you'd pick out or one feature of them that you'd pick out that, would, that makes you positive? feel positive about about the future and the progress it's going to bring about for people look i'm i'm kind of a, a pessimistic guy sometimes i go around the world and I, I take offense on so many things like why do people die of cancer today right and we, we put a lot of work into this but i asked the question are we doing the right work um i worked for example on skin cancer where we found that in AI-powered iPhone can detect skin cancer with the same accuracy as the best board-certified Stanford-level dermatologist. And for me, technology is just a tool. It's like a shovel or a, mm -hmm. a knife. And for me, the question is, can we leverage these new tools that exist today, that exist yesterday, to the betterment of humanity? And there's so much opportunity there's an educational opportunity. There's a transportation opportunity. There is, there's, a, there's an aging. There's a medical opportunity. Say your house was smart enough that every single time you slept, we could check you for congestive heart failure. You looked into your venting mirror, you could find upcoming strokes. We could listen to you to find Alzheimer earlier. Your phone could do this for you. Every time you touch the steering wheel, you get a 6-point EKG. These are all existing technologies today right. that we could build today to save human lives. Well, I think that we're going to hear a lot more about the various technologies you're building in the future. There's a lot going on. Sebastian, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Steve was totally chance pleasure. to talk. You know, like in a, in a way, as, as we've, we've known each other for years and actually I learned new things and got even more excited about what you're doing and the future. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me.